So as we prepare to turn our attention to scripture for these next nine weeks of study, we like to begin each semester by laying some foundational principles that establish how we approach the word of God. So these principles kind of serve as a framework that help us study the Bible well. Each of us as individuals bear responsibility for what we do with the words in the Bible. So we wanna do everything that we can to make sure that we are studying the word that, the God, that God gave us in the correct way. And so these principles, which you can find on page eight of your study guide, we call them principles for better Bible study, are going to help us do just that. So if you've been studying with us for a while, I hope that you are very, very familiar with these principles by now. Uh, Michelle had told me that she thought she could probably say them right along with me, and I said, that's good. That's my goal, and any future takers who want to come do this bit, just let me know, and I will sign you up for next semester. But we repeat these every semester because we think that they are so valuable. And if you haven't studied with us before, then it might be the very first time that you have heard some of these things. And we think that they are things that are important for you to hear. So the first principle for better Bible study is that the Bible is a book about God. And I know that you probably think that that is a very, very obvious thing to point out about the Bible. But I can assure you that that is something that we often skip over, sometimes we completely miss it, and much of the time we just completely underemphasize the fact that the point of the Bible is God himself. And the point of the entire Bible is to prepare us for and to point us toward him. So as those of us who study the Bible, we're going to have to be very intentional at keeping the point of the Bible at the center of our study. Every single word, every verse, every character, every event in the story of scripture has something to teach us about the nature and the character of God. So when we study the Bible, we go into it looking first and foremost for those things. So the second principle is that the Bible is not a book about you or me. If the Bible is a book primarily about God, then that means that it is not a book that is written primarily about us. So since it is not a book that is written about us, we have to stop reading it as if it is. So that means that when we go into our time of study of God's word, we don't want to enter into it first looking for how is this going to help me? How is this going to improve my relationship, my finances, my marriage, my family, and so on and so forth? Because when we go into a study of scripture looking first and foremost for those things, we are making it a book about us. But the Bible is not a book about us, it is a book about God. So a good rule of thumb is that the he has to come before me in Bible study. That is not to say that you are not going to learn a lot about who you are and, and how to live your life in a way that is going to reap better consequences, perhaps in your marriage or in your parenting or in your finances. But that is not the primary reason why we go to the Bible. The primary reason we go is to learn about God. And then in light of who God is, we can correctly view so much more about who we are 
and how to live life in accordance with who he is. The third principle is that the Bible tells one big story. The Bible tells the most amazing story of all time, and the point of the entire Bible is to tell just this single story. This theme of this one story is unmistakable, and there is one consistent message from God to man, and I have yet to find a better summation of that message than the one I found years ago when reading the Jesus Storybook Bible to my boys one night before bed. The author writes that the Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. You see, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling the one big story. The story of how God loves his children and he's come to rescue them. And that is the story in which the book of Numbers is embedded. So when we carry around with us a good understanding of that big story, then we can much better rightly understand the smaller stories that that big story, or the, yes, do you understand what I'm saying there? Okay, then I'm gonna move on <laughs> before I mess up even more. Principle number four is that the Bible is about real people and a living God who speaks to us right now. One of the things that I've noticed over years of teaching the Bible is that very often we tend to distance ourselves from the people and the places and the events in the Bible. We usually approach the Bible by focusing in on how the people are so different from us and the places are so far away and they're so foreign to us and the events are so completely irrelevant to how we live life in the 21st century but the people and the places and the events of the Bible are all together relevant to our lives today. And part of our job as those who study the Bible is to try to figure out how. So we wanna do the best we can to actually kind of step into these stories as we're reading the Bible and walk alongside these people as they are walking alongside God. Because when we do that, we come to learn about the nature and the character of God just as they do. And it becomes much easier for us to recognize the present tense reality of God's word speaking to us right now through the story of these people and their journey with God. Principle number five is that the Bible is a supernatural book. Although written by human hands, the words of the Bible are divinely inspired, which means that ultimately, we attribute authorship of the Bible to God himself. So that makes it different than any other book that we've ever read, and because of that, we wanna make sure that we approach it differently than we would approach anything else that we do read, right? We never want to read the Bible without first remembering who it is that wrote the Bible. So that means that when we come to the Bible, we approach it from a position of humility. We put ourselves in submission to the words of the Bible instead of coming at it as if we have some authority or lordship over it. 
we realize that we are completely dependent on the Spirit of God to give us an understanding of the Bible, so we approach it prayerfully. We use the mind that the Lord gave us to think about it and to question it and to study it and to read it, but then we come to God in humility and we ask that his spirit would lead us into an understanding and an acceptance of it. Principle six is that context is crucial. If I had to pick out the single most important rule for studying the Bible well, I would say that it is this, and that is that context determines everything. If you want to correctly understand any single verse from Scripture, you have to first carry a good understanding of the context in which that verse is given. The uh, Bible was written as individual books by individual people to a specific person or a specific group of people for a very specific reason within a very specific cultural moment, historical moment. There are countless things that we need to take in consideration before we start yanking things out of context. So if you want to correctly understand something, you want to first kind of look at who wrote this, when it was written, why it was written, and explore all those things so that you can understand it well. One of the best tools, um, tips I ever was given for studying the Bible is when I heard we have to first understand correctly what it meant to them then before we can understand what it means to us now. And that's one of the reasons why this Bible study process we lay out before you of comprehension, interpretation, application is so important is because we always just want to jump to the good stuff. Like, what does this mean to me now? But we cannot understand what it's supposed to mean to us now if we don't first understand rightly what it meant to them then. So you will get a lot of practice on that over these next nine weeks of study. And finally, the last principle is that commitment is key. Coming to know God through the study of his word is not something that happens by accident. It takes time, it takes intentionality, and I have found that I always have to make a choice to give up something else in order to make that happen. So we're just telling you that at the outset of these nine weeks of study together so that you can make a commitment to be here, to put in the work on a daily basis as you prepare for your time of small group discussion and then you come in for the teaching. We have, over the course of the years that we've been leading this study, we have seen firsthand the power that the living word of God has in the life of the woman who is committed to studying it. And that is something that we would deeply desire to see for each and every one of you who have registered this semester. So if we're going to keep with those principles of better Bible study, then the next thing that we're going to do, and actually we've devoted the entirety of this first session to, is looking at the context of the book of Numbers. Doing that is going to help us understand how this study fits into the big story of the Bible because the story of Numbers actually began a long, long, long time before the book of Numbers opens. And that is because the book of Numbers is just one small part of that story that the Bible is telling. So this story begins in the book of Genesis with the triune God of the universe who in an overflow of his perfect love created the world and everything in it. 
And then as the crown of his creation, he made us humans to be his children and to rule his world on his behalf. But in Genesis chapter 3, when given the opportunity to choose between trusting in God or trusting ourselves, we chose ourselves, and that choice created a fracture in the relationship between God and humankind. And that fracture instantaneously broke everything else in God's once good creation. Yeah, we broke fellowship with God, and then the effects of that brokenness rippled out to all of creation. And yet God still reigned and he still ruled over it all and he refused to give up on his people. Even in the midst of our rebellion, he promised that he was one day going to send the one who would undo what we had done and find a way to restore a right relationship between God and humanity once again. But the effects of our broken decision had created hurt and it had created division and it had created pain. It had turned us against God. It had turned husband against wife. It had turned brother against brother. In fact, the pain of this brokenness reached such a crescendo that in Genesis chapter six, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So God sent a great flood upon the earth, but the grace of God through one righteous man, Noah, saved us all from God's just and holy wrath. And then generations later, through the line of one of Noah's sons, came a man named Abraham. And Abraham was a pagan man living in a pagan land. But upon hearing the call of God to follow him out of that land, Abraham obeyed the voice of the Lord. And with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God moved to correct the broken bent that the story of mankind had taken. And God does this through a series of promises that he made to Abraham. God promised Abraham, who was a 75-year-old childless man at the time, that he would become the father of an entire nation of people and that kings would come from him. And God said that he would give this people who came from Abraham a place a land of their own, and that he would protect this people, and he would provide for this people, and that his very presence would be with this people. And then as if that were not enough, God tacked on this other mysterious promise to the end of all of those promises when he told Abraham, in you, all of the families on the earth will be blessed. Now, Abraham could not have known at that time the significance of that promise, but because you and I have this in our hands, we have the ability to do something that Abraham could not do. Because we have this, we can pan back and we can look at the full story of Scripture, and we can know that that promise that God gave to Abraham was the beginning of something big. That promise was an indication that one day the Messiah... Christ would come from the line of Abraham. Because of the significance of that promise given at that time, at that moment, you can see the entire storyline of scripture just shifts 
it turns to focus in tight on this one man and the people who would come from him because that is the line through who Christ would one day come. And these people were the Israelites, the people who God raised up through Abraham and his wife Sarah, whose son was Isaac, whose son was Jacob, who God renamed Israel. And the Israelites were a people who were created for and marked by their Lord God creator. And the Israelites were to display the glory of God through their love for him and their obedience to him. So that last half of the book of Genesis gives us a really close look into the beginnings of God's covenant family. God had placed the Israelites in the land of Canaan, and he had promised that one day he was going to give them that land. But then at the end of Genesis, something unexpected happens, and this devastating famine just hits the entire land of Canaan. But even in the midst of this famine, God is faithful to provide for this people, and this time he does so through a man named Joseph. Joseph, who was the great-grandson of Abraham, the, the son of Israel, who many years earlier had been sold into Egypt as a slave through the betrayal of his brothers. But in his sovereignty, God had protected Joseph during his time in Egypt, and he had even risen him to this position of great prestige and great power so that at just the right moment, at the moment of the Israelites' greatest need, Joseph was able to bring his family in under the abundant provision of Egypt. The book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph, and we turn the page in the story to the book of Exodus. Hundreds and hundreds of years have passed, and the Israelites have grown from this extended family to an entire people group. And they are no longer welcomed guests in the land of Egypt, but they, now, they are now feared as a foreign presence. So in an attempt to stunt the growth of the people of the Israelites and to subdue them, they are enslaved by the Egyptians. And the Israelites cry out to God in the midst of their slavery, and God hears the cries of his people. He calls out from among the Israelites a man named Moses, and he tells Moses that he is to lead his people out of the land of their slavery. However, Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, is quite unwilling to let the Israelites go. But Pharaoh's resistance to the will of God just sets the stage for what turns out to be this stunning movement of God in the redemption of his people. And through this series of miraculous events by the mighty hand of God, Moses indeed does lead the people out of the land of their slavery. And that is when they begin their journey with God toward the place of his promise. That land that he had promised Abraham would be his descendants all of those many years ago. You see, the people of God were never merely intended to be a people who had been freed from, but more than that, they were to be a people who were delivered Two, a people freed from slavery and delivered into worship. 
God's rescue of the Israelites was always intended to achieve a very specific purpose. And God said this purpose just repeatedly to Pharaoh in the early parts of Exodus when he demanded of him, let my people go so that they may worship me. The Israelites were freed from slavery so that they could worship and they could serve their God. But the problem with the people who have been enslaved for over 400 years, ruled by a foreign presence, is that they had forgotten. They knew so little of who their God was and who, as his people, he had called them to be. So in the wilderness, God would teach them these things. These lessons began in the second half of the book of Exodus, the first major stop of the Israelites' journey toward the land of promise was Mount Sinai. And some very important things happen at Mount Sinai. Um, at Mount Sinai, God invited the Israelites to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And today, we refer to this covenant as the Mosaic Covenant. Now, this covenant was centered around the divine law that God gave at Mount Sinai. And as we continue to journey through the book of Numbers, it's going to be very important for us to remember that this covenant carried with it obligations on the, both of, on the part of both parties, on the part of Israel and on the part of God. When Israel entered into this covenant, they agreed that they would abide by the law that God had given that was their obligation. God agreed that if they abide by his law, if they were faithful and obedient to him, then he would protect them, that he would provide them, that his presence would be with them, that he would bless them. But if they were disobedient, he would discipline them. And that was God's obligation. It's so easy for us today, living where we live now, to just see the law as nothing more than a bunch of rules that God wanted his people to follow. But it was so much more than that. To the Israelites, the, the law represented a way of living, a way of being. Whenever it is mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament, it is always referred to as this thing of just extreme beauty and honor. It was a symbol to the Israelites of the very great love and devotion that their God had for them. That the one who created all things would give them a guideline for how they were to live their lives in the midst of it was a thing of very great beauty and honor. And the purpose of the covenant that God invited the Israelites into was to set the Israelites apart as God's holy people. And it was obedience to God's law that was to accomplish that. Through their obedience to the law of God, the Israelites were going to demonstrate, they were going to reflect the holiness of God to all of the surrounding nations. People from nations both near and far would hear of the God of the people of Israel and they would come to know him as a God who freed his people from slavery and delivered them into worship and service to him, the one true God. 
In Exodus 19, this is what God told the Israelites. He said, now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So if you look really carefully at that verse, you can see the covenant language just embedded in the text there. God said, if you obey then you will be. So the primary way in which the Israelites were to worship God was through their obedience to him. The Israelites immediately recognized the very great beauty and worth of the law that God had given them and their great need for God, and they immediately agree to the terms of the covenant and they enter into this relationship with the Lord. But despite their initial enthusiasm, we see in the book of Exodus that very quickly the covenant is broken, right? The people falter and they fall, and yet we see God is faithful. He is so quick to remember that they are a people who have been enslaved by a foreign power for over 400 years. He is quick to forgive them of their trespasses, and he is patient allowing time for their faith in him and their knowledge of him to grow and be nurtured. He is faithful to the promises that he made to his people. In fact, the book of Exodus ends with one of those promises coming to fruition as the holy presence of God actually comes down to dwell with his people in the wilderness, in the place of the tabernacle. So then the book of Numbers picks up right there right where the book of Exodus leaves off. The Israelites are still camped at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, in our last study, The Way of the Wilderness, we looked at the first 19 chapters of the book of Numbers. So let's first review what happened before we then take a quick peek ahead to see where we're going over these next nine weeks. So the English title for... Our book, Numbers, came to us from the Greek translation, and it was undoubtedly named Numbers because of all the numbers, right? And most notably, the two censuses recorded in the book of Numbers that God commanded to be taken of his people. So Numbers is a really good, sturdy, practical title for this book of the Bible, but it does leave just a little bit to be desired. The Hebrew title for this book, In the Wilderness, I think much more accurately captures the ethos or the essence of this part of the biblical narrative. The book of Numbers chronicles the journey of the Israelites as they make their way through the wilderness from the base of Mount Sinai. And when we leave them at the end of this study, they will be camped on the plains of Moab poised and ready for their conquest of Canaan. So the uninterrupted version of this journey should have taken the Israelites approximately two weeks to traverse. But Numbers records a journey that ends up taking over 40 years. I was going over this teaching in the car with my 11-year-old, who's going on 42, apparently, and when I got to that part, he said, what on earth? And I said, exactly. (laughs) What on earth is a very good question to ask. What on earth could take a two-week journey to the delay 
of 40 years. We saw as we studied the first 19 chapters of Numbers that as they made their way through the wilderness, the people of God were repeatedly faced with the choice to either trust and obey or doubt and defy the Lord. Where they chose to trust and obey, we saw their journey progress, but where they chose to doubt and defy, their way grew stagnant. Now, the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers, we saw a great emphasis on the trust and the obedience of the Israelites. God gave an incredible amount of instruction in those first 10 chapters. Those of you that are with us are like, yes. Okay, he gave an incredible amount of instruction in those first 10 chapters. He uh, numbered and assigned each and every one of them a place and a purpose within the camp. We saw that he was just so intimately involved in the details of their lives. He told them how they were to keep the camp clean and undefiled so that he could continue to dwell among them. He told them when it was time to pick up and go, when it was time to stop and camp, how long they were supposed to be there, and then when it was time to journey on again. And in those first 10 chapters of number, we saw a phrase repeated time and again, and that was that the Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded. And as the Israelites walked in that trust and in that obedience, their way prospered, and God blessed them. And that was what we saw from chapters 1 to 10, and then we came to chapter 11, where the Israelites encountered hardship. And this hardship began to reveal cracks in the foundation of their faith. And instead of choosing to trust and obey the Lord in the midst of this hardship, they instead began to doubt and defy him. And that doubt and defiance worked itself out in several different ways, but most notably, we saw it work out in the form of complaints, in the form of criticism. So that's what we saw for a couple of chapters there. But every time we saw this defiance, we saw the Lord would correct his people, he would address their sin, and yet he would still then continue to lead them on. Because the Lord had never expected the people to follow him perfectly, but what he had expected is that they would continue to follow him that no matter how imperfectly, they would persist in the pursuit of the one who had freed them from slavery. And we see that happen all the way up until Numbers chapter 14. And Numbers chapter 14 served as a turning point, not just in the book of Numbers, but really in, in the history of the Israelites as an entire people. When God brought them right up to the border of the land of promise, and yet they refused to enter into it. They allowed their fear of what lay ahead, of the battles in which they were to engage and the enemies that they were supposed to conquer, they let their fear over the unknown triumph over their faith in the Lord and the promises that he had made them. And yet God is faithful. He would not abandon his people or the promises that he had made them, but we also see that God is just. 
Their rebellion carried with it consequences, and they would not inherit the promises that they would not pursue. So God decreed that instead of going into the land of his promise, they would instead journey the wilderness around it for 40 years. And at that point, when the last of the rebellious generation had died, God would lead the next generation in, and they, the children, would inherit the promises that their parents had forfeited. So when the Israelites heard this pronounced judgment of God, they were just greatly distressed, so much so that they decide to just completely change their mind, and they charge forth into the place of God's promise without the person of God at their side, and the result is disastrous. They are quickly and decidedly, de decisively defeated, and that is when their wilderness journeys began. Now, we don't have a lot of insight into what exactly occurred during these 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. If you look at the timeline that's in the back of your study guide, you can see how relatively little detail that we're given regarding that long 40-year time span, especially when it's compared to those very small chunks of time that came right before it. So maybe that's what we would expect. Maybe we would expect that after this huge, significant turning point in their life, after such a devastating loss, that they would rightly see who God is and that they would live out just the rest of their lives in this quiet obedience and this humble submission to the Lord. But we do get a, a little clue into the fact that it might not have been quite that simple because in Numbers chapter 16, we saw yet another rebellion when Korah and his followers rose up against Moses and Aaron, who were God's clearly appointed leaders. And yet despite the grim turn that the story of Numbers seems to have taken, we ended the first part of our study by looking at Numbers chapter 19 a chapter in which God provides for the Israelites a means of purification, a means of cleansing and a means of restoration, a means through which after having been defiled, they could enter back in to a right relationship with God and with each other. And we noted that how through Jesus Christ, God has provided you and I today with that very same thing, with a means of purification a means of cleansing and restoration, a means through which those of us who have been defiled by sin can enter back into a relationship with God and with one another. So now as we turn our eyes to the last part of our study of Numbers, we'll find that the Israelites are approaching the beginning of the end of their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. The old generation has died, and the new generation will soon get their own chance to either trust or obey or doubt and defy the Lord. And together, we'll see how that journey progresses. As we do, we'll have a really good opportunity to look at our own journey as well, because the Israelites are not the only one who God leads through the wilderness. It's a journey that those of us who follow after Christ today must also take. 
You see, we too are a people on a journey, a people traveling away from our life of slavery to sin and heading toward the place that God has promised us. And just as the Israelites' journey, their rescue from slavery was always intended to achieve a very specific purpose, so too is ours. God's people, both then and now, are not merely a people who have been freed from, but we are a people who are being delivered to. Freed from slavery and delivered into worship and service of the one true God. So since our journey now bears such a remarkable resemblance to their journey then, let's lean in close over these next nine weeks of study. Let's allow the faith of the Israelites to encourage us and the failures of the Israelites to correct us as we too persistently pursue God and his promises.